Listen to any earnings call with the Borstar Earnings Call mobile app now available on the App Store. Check the show notes for the download link. Hello and welcome to City's Third Quarter 2018 Earnings Review with Chief Executive Officer Mike Corbett and Chief Financial Officer John Gersbach. Today's call will be hosted by Susan Kendall, Head of City Investor Relations. We ask that you please hold all questions until the completion of the former remarks, at which time you will be given instructions for the question and answer session. Also, as a reminder, this conference is being recorded today. If you have any objections, please disconnect at this time. Ms. Kendall, you may begin. Thank you, Natalia. Good morning, and thank you all for joining us. On our call today, our CEO, Mike Corbett, will speak first. Then John Gersbach, our CFO, will take you through the earnings presentation, which is available for download on our website, citigroup.com. Afterwards, we'll be happy to take questions. Before we get started, I would like to remind you that today's presentation may contain forward-looking statements, which are based on management's current expectations and are subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. Actual results in capital and other financial condition may differ materially from these statements due to a variety of factors, including the precautionary statements referenced in our discussion today and those included in our SEC filings, including without limitation the risk factors section of our 2017 Form 10-K. With that said, let me turn it over to Mike. Thank you, Susan, and good morning, everyone. Earlier today, we reported earnings of $4.6 billion for the third quarter of 2018, or $1.73 per share. We continue to see solid growth this quarter in many areas, including our accrual businesses in ICG, fixed income, and Mexico consumer. And despite a drag from net one-time gains that affected our top-line comparisons, we still achieved positive operating leverage for the quarter, driving our efficiency ratio down to 56.1%. Loans and deposits both grew year over year, and our return on assets increased to 95 basis points. We're on track to achieve our 2018 financial targets. On a year-to-date basis, we've generated 4% underlying growth in aggregate across our consumer and institutional businesses, Our efficiency ratio is 57.3%, and we achieved a return on on tangible common equity of 11.2%, keeping us on track to exceed our original target of 10.5% for the full year. We returned $6.4 billion of capital to common shareholders through buybacks and dividends during the quarter, and over the past 12 months, We've reduced our common shares outstanding by over $200 million, or 8%. Combined with our operating performance, our earnings per share were 22% higher than one year ago. Turning to the businesses in global consumer banking, we saw solid growth in Mexico, even when you back out the gain on the sale of our asset management business. In Asia, we saw some headwinds in our more market-sensitive investment products, but the remainder of the franchise showed consistent growth. And in the U.S., we're starting to see the impact of the L.L. Bean portfolio and retail services where revenue continued to grow. Branded cards had sequential revenue growth, and given strong growth in interest earning balances, we remain on course to achieve 2% underlying revenue growth for the year. Our institutional clients group grew by 4%, excluding a one-time gain from last year. Fixed income and equities were up 7% in total. And as in the past, 
are accrual businesses, TTS, security services, corporate lending, and the private bank all showed strong year-over-year growth. Investment banking was down versus last year as continued growth in M&A was more than offset by slower underwriting activity across the industry, but client dialogues remain solid and we feel good about the pipeline and upcoming transactions. During the quarter, we also made some changes to make certain our structure is completely aligned with our strategic goals. In North America, we shifted to the same regional model we have in Asia and Latin America and have asked Anand Selva to run what is our largest consumer market. His experience in Asia, where we operate a client-centric franchise with strong digital adoption, will help us bring North America to where it needs to be as we look to leverage both our brand and our scale and credit cards to drive deeper client relationships nationwide. In ICG, we're combining corporate and investment banking with capital markets origination. By integrating advisory services with capital raising, we believe we will ensure an even greater focus on our clients. And Paco Yabara will become Jamie Faris's deputy, giving Paco a platform to focus on technology and capital optimization across our institutional businesses. And as you know, Several senior leaders at our firm have decided to retire, among them John Gershbach, but the good news is, is this isn't your last call with John since he won't be leaving until we file our 2018 financial statements. With that, John, I'll turn it over to you to go through the presentation, and then we're happy to take questions. Thanks, Mike, uh, and uh, good morning, everyone. Starting on slide three. Net income of $4.6 billion in the third quarter grew 12% from last year, largely driven by a lower effective tax rate. And EPS grew 22%, including the impact of an 8% reduction in average diluted shares outstanding. Revenues of $18.4 billion were roughly flat to the prior year, reflecting the net impact of one-time gains in the third quarters of both 2017 and 2018, as well as FX translation. As a reminder, last year we recorded a gain of approximately $580 million on the sale of a fixed income analytics business in ICG. And this year, our results include a gain of roughly $250 million on the sale of our Mexico asset management business in consumer. In constant dollars, total revenues, excluding these gains, grew by 4% in the third quarter driven by strong performance in our institutional franchise. Despite the revenue headwind from net one-time gains, we achieved positive operating leverage this quarter, with our efficiency ratio improving year over year to 56.1%. Cost of credit was down slightly versus last year, as lower reserve bills in consumer were largely offset by volume growth and the normalization of credit costs in ICG. And, excluding the gains in both periods, pre-tax earnings grew 8% year over year. In constant dollars, Citigroup end-of-period loans grew 4% year over year to $675 billion. GCB and ICG loans grew by 6%, or $37 billion in total, with contribution from every region in consumer, as well as TTS, 
the private bank, and traditional corporate lending. Looking at year-to-date results on slide four, you can see aggregate revenues in our consumer and institutional businesses have grown 4% this year, excluding the previously mentioned gains. On an underlying basis, institutional revenues have grown 4% in line with our medium-term expectations driven by our accrual businesses in treasury and trade solutions, security services, lending, and the private bank. And consumer revenues have grown 3% in constant dollars, somewhat below our medium-term goal. Now, this is primarily driven by the near-term impact of weaker market sentiment on our Asia wealth management revenues, the impact of partnership terms that came into effect earlier this year in U.S. branded cards, which we will lap as we go into 2019. And finally, in U.S. retail, a drag from lower U.S. mortgage revenues, which should abate going forward, as well as rising deposit sensitivity. Despite these headwinds, we've made good progress on expenses, bringing our year-to-date efficiency ratio down to 57.3%. Credit quality remains broadly stable across the franchise, and underlying pre-tax earnings grew 5%. EPS grew by 24%, including the benefit of share buybacks, as well as a lower effective tax rate. And our year-to-date ROTCE is 11.2%, well above our full-year target of 10.5%. Turning now to the third quarter, slide five shows the results for global consumer banking in constant dollars. Net income grew 36% in the third quarter, largely driven by lower cost of credit, a lower effective tax rate, and the gain on the sale of our Mexico asset management business. Total revenues of $8.7 billion grew 3% year over year, reflecting the strength in Latin America as well as the one-time gain. And expenses increased by 6% year-over-year, driven by the timing of investment initiatives versus the prior year. On a sequential basis, expenses were flat, and year-to-date, both revenues and expenses grew 4% versus last year. Slide 6 shows the results for North America consumer in more detail. In total, third-quarter revenues of $5.1 billion were down 1% from last year. Retail banking revenues of $1.3 billion declined 3% year over year. Mortgage revenues continued to decline, mostly reflecting lower origination activity and higher funding costs. Excluding mortgage, retail banking revenues grew 1% in the third quarter a slower pace than we saw in the first half of the year, largely reflecting lower episodic transaction activity in commercial banking, as well as increasing rate sensitivity. While deposit spreads continued to improve year over year, the pace of improvement slowed this quarter, led by a deposit mix shift in our commercial portfolio. Average deposits declined 2% year over year, primarily driven by a reduction in money market balances as clients put more money to work in investments. Assets under management grew 9% to $64 billion. In aggregate, deposits and assets under management grew slightly year over year 
as strong growth in city gold households and balances more than offset other outflows. Turning to branded cards, revenues were down 3% from last year, including the impact of the sale of the Hilton portfolio, as well as previously mentioned partnership terms that went into effect earlier this year. Now, excluding Hilton, purchase sales grew 11% year over year in the quarter, and average loans grew 4%, including 7% growth in interest earning balances as recent vintages continued to mature. This growth in interest earning balances is driving a positive mix shift in our portfolio. As a result, on a sequential basis, our net interest revenue as a percentage of loans or net interest revenue percentage improved as expected by over 20 basis points and our net interest revenues grew by 5%. We expect the NIR percentage to continue to improve in the fourth quarter, resulting in year-over-year spread expansion that should continue into 2019. For the full year, we continue to expect reported revenues and branded cards to be roughly flat. However, we remain on track to achieve 2% underlying growth. This underlying growth should accelerate and translate into reported growth in 2019, even considering the Hilton and Visa B gains we took earlier this year. Finally, Retail services revenues of $1.7 billion grew 2%, driven by organic loan growth, as well as the full quarter benefit of the recent acquisition of the LL Bean card portfolio, partially offset by higher partner payments. Total expenses for North America consumer were up 7%, primarily reflecting the timing of investments versus the prior period. On a sequential basis, expenses were roughly flat and should remain stable into the fourth quarter. Turning to credit, total credit costs were down 20% year over year, primarily due to a lower reserve build in both branded cards and retail services relative to last year. Our NCL rate in U.S. branded cards was 291 basis points, in line with an NCL rate in the range of 3%, for 2018. And in retail services, our NCL rate was 458 basis points, which is also consistent with our outlook for an NCL rate in the range of 5% for 2018. On slide seven, we show results for international consumer banking in constant dollars. Third quarter revenues of 3.5 billion grew 11% driven by strength in Latin America, as well as the previously mentioned one-time gain. In Latin America, excluding the gain, total consumer revenues grew 8%, driven by continued volume growth across commercial, mortgage, and card loans, as well as deposits. Turning to Asia, consumer revenues grew 1% year-over-year in the third quarter. As continued growth in deposit, lending, and insurance revenues was largely offset by lower investment revenues given a weaker market sentiment. Over the last 12 months, Asia consumer revenues grew 4%, in line with our medium-term expectations 
driven by 5% growth in revenues, excluding investment products. While investment product revenues are more market sensitive and can be variable quarter to quarter, we've seen growth over time, consistent with our growth in clients and assets under management. And we are continuing to increase the proportion of more stable, accrual-type investment revenues as our business in Asia today is more sensitive to upfront transaction fees than in other regions. In total, operating expenses were up 4% in the third quarter as investment spending and volume-driven growth were partially offset by efficiency savings. And cost of credit grew 17%, reflecting loan growth as well as the impact of a reserve release in Asia in the prior year period. Slide eight shows our global consumer credit trends in more detail. Credit remained broadly favorable again this quarter across regions. The sequential increase in the NCL rate in Latin America reflected an episodic commercial charge-off that was fully offset by a related loan loss reserve release and therefore neutral to cost of credit. Turning now to the institutional clients group on slide nine, excluding the impact of a prior year gain, revenues of $9.2 billion increased 4% in the third quarter. And we're also up 4% on a year to date basis with strength in both banking and markets. Total banking revenues of 4.9 billion grew 2%. Treasury and trade solutions revenues of 2.3 billion were up 4% as reported and 8% in constant dollars, reflecting continued growth in transaction volumes, loans, and deposits. Investment banking revenues of 1.2 billion were down 8% from last year as growth in M&A was more than offset by a decline in underwriting fees reflecting lower market activity. Private bank revenues of $849 million grew 7% year over year, driven by growth in loans and investments, as well as improved deposit spreads. And corporate lending revenues of 563 million were up 11%, reflecting loan growth along with lower hedging costs. Total markets and security services revenues of $4.5 billion were up 8%, excluding the gain last year. Fixed income revenues of $3.2 billion increased 9% year-over-year with contribution from both rates and currencies as well as spread products. Equities revenues were up 1% as strength in prime finance and derivatives was largely offset by lower revenues in cash equities, reflecting a more challenging trading environment and lower commissions. And finally, in security services, revenues were up 11% as reported and 15% in constant dollars, driven by continued growth in client volumes and higher interest revenue. Total operating expenses of $5.2 billion increased 1% year over year as higher compensation costs, investments, and an increase in business volumes were partially offset by efficiency savings. And finally, cost of credit was $71 million this quarter, reflecting loan growth. Slide 10 shows the results for Corp Other. Revenues of $494 million declined 5% from last year, 
driven by the wind-down of legacy assets. Expenses were down 44%, also reflecting the wind-down, as well as lower infrastructure costs. And pre-tax income was $65 million this quarter, better than our outlook, reflecting higher Treasury revenues and lower infrastructure expenses relative to our prior expectations. Looking ahead to the fourth quarter, we expect a modest pre-tax loss in corp other, mostly driven by seasonally higher franchise-wide marketing and regulatory consulting costs relative to the third quarter. Slide 11 shows our net interest revenue and margin trends. As you can see, total net interest revenue of $11.8 billion this quarter grew roughly 5% from last year as growth in core accrual net interest revenue was partially offset by lower trading-related net interest revenue, as well as the continued wind-down of legacy assets in Corp. Other. Core accrual net interest revenue grew by roughly $970 million year over year, and our core accrual, that's net interest margin, improved by 12 basis points to 360 basis points driven by rate increases, loan growth, and an improved loan mix versus last year. On a sequential basis, core accrual revenues grew approximately $270 million, reflecting the benefit of higher rates as well as loan growth, along with the impact of one additional day in the quarter. However, core accrual net interest margin remained flat on a sequential basis as the benefits of higher rates and loan growth were offset by higher average cash balances during the quarter. Year-to-date, core accrual revenue grew by over $2.7 billion year-over-year, and we expect to see additional growth in the fourth quarter that's roughly in line with the $970 million we saw this quarter. So the growth in our core accrual net interest revenue should approach $3.7 billion for full year 2018. However, as a reminder, on a full year basis, we expect this increase to be partially offset by a roughly $500 million decline in the net interest revenue generated in the legacy asset wind-down portfolio in corporate other. And trading-related net interest revenue will likely continue to face headwinds in a rising rate environment as we've seen year to date. On slide 12, we show our key capital metrics. In the third quarter, our CET1 capital ratio declined sequentially to 11.8% as net income was more than offset by share buybacks and dividends, and we saw an increase in risk-weighted assets related to client activity. And our tangible book value per share increased slightly to $61.91. Before we go to Q&A, let me spend a few minutes on our outlook for the fourth quarter. In ICG, equity and fixed income market revenues should reflect a normal seasonal decline from the third to the fourth quarter. However, we currently expect revenues to be higher on a year-over-year basis. Turning to investment banking, revenues should reflect the overall environment, but Given our current backlog, we expect revenues to be up both sequentially and year-over-year. And we expect continued year-over-year growth in our accrual businesses, 
including treasury and trade solutions, security services, lending, and the private bank. In consumer, in North America, we expect to see somewhat better growth in retail banking, <coughs> excluding mortgage, as well as retail services. In U.S. branded cards, total revenues will continue to reflect the impact of the Hilton sale, as well as partnership terms that went into effect earlier this year. However, the net interest revenue percentage should improve both sequentially and year over year. And we expect continued year-over-year -year revenue growth in Asia and Mexico. Cost of credit should remain fairly stable quarter over quarter. And we remain on track to, re to achieve roughly 100 basis points of efficiency improvement this year. This would put us at a 57.3% efficiency ratio for the full year. Even though the fourth quarter revenues will likely see some pressure sequentially given a normal seasonal decline in trading revenues, our expenses should also decline modestly on lower compensation costs and better efficiency savings. This should put our efficiency ratio in the fourth quarter roughly in line with our performance year to date. And finally, our tax rate should be in the range of 24 to 25%. And with that, Mike and I are happy to take any questions. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Again, that's star one to ask a question. Your first question is from the line of John McDonald with Bernstein. Good morning. Uh, John, I wanted to, yeah, as we look out to your 2020 financial targets, at a high level, you're projecting a, a widening of the operating leverage draws next year, an acceleration of the efficiency improvement that you're already having. So I guess as we look out in that plan, is it fair that you expect that widening of the operating leverage to be partly driven by stronger revenues and partly by slower expense growth as we look out? Yeah, I mean, John, I, I think, you know, we're consistent with what we laid out uh, at Investor Day last year. and We've been talking about, certainly during the first nine months of this year, you know, which is that, you know, we, we continue to expect, uh, you know, revenue growth largely in line with GDP, you know, call that that 4% or so revenue growth in our core businesses, say 3% overall. So we are expecting some degree of revenue growth and basically holding expenses flat over that period. Gotcha. Um, and then the efficiency improvement uh, this quarter seemed to be uh, concentrated in the corporate other segment. Are, are we getting to the point where the incremental savings will start being reflected in the core businesses as we look out? You know, you, you'll, you'll see, as we said, you know, consumer expenses staying stable next quarter. But again, you know, la last quarter, John, we talked about the fact that, you know, from an investment point of view, we were about, you know, 50% through our investment spend. And at that point in time, about a third of the way through generating uh, the expense efficiencies associated with those investments. Both of those have ticked up. We are starting to see that gap begin to close. It's certainly visible to us in the details. I can't say that it's going to be visible to you in the fourth quarter in the each of the businesses, but you'll certainly see that in 2019. 
Gotcha. Okay, and one more quick follow-up. Um, in terms of the card revenues uh, starting to uh, look better next year, uh, it seems like the core revenue growth rate feels like 2% this year and will accelerate next year on a core basis. Is that really driven by the decline in promotional balances and the impact on the net interest yield? Yeah, John, it's, it's, it's two things. I mean, we continue, of course, to grow the – I think it's more the fact that as those – promotional balances run down, we're continuing to convert a lot of those balances into full rate revolving balances. We talked last quarter about the fact that we saw that conversion rate at you know, something just below 50%, and that we continue to, to see that type of performance. So you've got that mix of the net interest earning balances growing, you know, I referenced it as 7% growth in the net interest earning balances this quarter. And then and you combine that with the decline in the promo balances, and that's really what's, what's fueling uh, that revenue growth that we see going into next year. So, you know, as we look forward, you know, we expect those interest earning balances to continue to grow. And then, you know, a larger percentage of that growth gradually comes from the higher margin proprietary product balances. So promotional rate loans decline, the other balances grow, and that's what's, what's driving it. This is all part of what we're trying to achieve by getting the right balance in our U.S. branded cards portfolio. We've talked about this in the past. And I think that what you're going to see is that by the end of 2019, we should have a well-balanced portfolio with the appropriate mix of you know, both interest-bearing and non-interest-bearing receivables. And then importantly, within each of those categories, we will have the right balance of, you know, on the interest-earning balances, the right balance between co-brand and proprietary products. And then in the non-interest-bearing, the right mix of promotional and transactor balances. All of that is really what's going to fuel that revenue growth that you're going to see in 2019 and then beyond. Gotcha. Thank you. All right. Your next question is from the line of Jim Mitchell with Buckingham Research. Hey, good morning, John. Hi, Jim. Hey, uh, maybe just following up on, on John's prior question on cards, uh, as you noted, uh, the net interest uh, or the, re the NIR percentage grew 23 bips to 851. Um, where do you see that settling long term? Obviously, you know, prior to all the teaser rate and Costco um, teaser rate cards, you were doing north of nine. Is that something where you could get back to? How do we think about, you know, that, that longer-term uh, potential revenue yield in the card business? Yeah, I don't think that we're right in the position now, Jim, to give you a long-term goal on net interest percentage. Uh, a lot of that's going to depend on, you know, where the interest rate environment settles out. And then, you know, just how successful we are in driving that, that right balance. But we certainly see it growing higher in 2019. Okay. Do you think the, the conversion of uh, at about less than, a little less than 50%, does that slow loan growth but also help on the credit side? How do we think about that, that trade-off? Well, it does slow loan growth a little bit, but I think it, it's, you know, if, if, you're, if you're focused on growing loans, and only growing loans, we could put out those promotional balances all day long oh, sure. and grow loans. 
And then you'd be asking me about, well, where's the revenue? And so, what again, what, what, what you do is with those promotional balances, you're, you're hoping that those clients, once they're finished with the promotional period, like the value proposition that they see based on the card that they've taken, and then stick with you and convert to a full rate revolving loan. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So we're happy to trade off some uh, reduction in the growth of non-interest-bearing loans for faster growth in interest-bearing loans. Right. And I was just asking, does that help on the credit side as you get rid of those, those non-interest-bearing loans that roll off? That's all. You, uh, you mean as that. far as from a from an NCL yeah, percentage you, point you of view? Yeah. Yeah, it, it 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 might, but hopefully we're getting the right growth elsewhere as well. So, uh, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't ascribe uh, any part of our NCL rate being you know holding it around that three to three and a quarter as something to do with the fact that we're quickly running off promotional balances. Okay, I mean that's fine. Um, and just maybe just one other on the, maybe forgive me if I mi missed your comment on on thick trading, but you guys obviously at least so far what we've seen outperformed I think expectations is that really largely the EM volatility that we've seen? Um, how do we how do we think about that and um, with respect to thick and also I guess longer term if you if you're worried about some of these uh, movements in currencies. Yeah, actually, you know, when we talk about the strong performance in rates and currencies this quarter, it, it was really centered more so in G10 rates and G10 FX. And I, I'd say it's fueled by a combination of strong corporate client activity and also uh, our ability to navigate uh, a fairly uh, interesting trading environment in the second half of the quarter. There was, you know, a good amount of market volatility in the second half of the quarter, you know, due to a combination of, you know, U.S. interest rate moves and pressure on the euro resulting from uh, uh, the situation in Turkey. And I think our guys did a, a great job navigating that environment. Okay, thanks. Your next question is from the line of Glenn Shore with Evercore ISI. Hi, thanks. Hi, Glenn. Uh, Glenn. Hello there. Uh, quickly on Mexico and Asia. Uh, the good on Mexico, I'm, I'm just curious on on the removal of the NAFTA headwind, if that increases your confidence in your 10%-ish growth expectations, which has been good, and, and maybe a flip side question on Asia, good explanation on market-sensitive stuff weighing down decent underlying growth. But in the, in the 4% 2020 target, it, it, that's a full package, right? It, it, in other words, markets go good and bad, but we're still expecting 4% growth through 2020 targets? Yes. So if you let's take, take each of those pieces. So one is um, we like the fact that there's a deal on the table. Obviously, it needs to be ratified by all three governments. Uh, hopefully, we hear back fairly quickly from Mexico and from Canada. Uh, we've got a political backdrop. We've got to work our way through the midterms, et cetera, here. But I think the deal that's on the table and getting that behind that us would be important. I would say you know, we stay uh, committed on the 10%. I would argue, Glenn, that, that kind of near to intermediate term, NAFTA likely has a bigger impact on our institutional 
flows than our consumer flows. And so when you look there, you know, I think what we've seen as the result of, of some of the skirmish back and forth is I think you've seen FDI go down. You've seen more volatility in the currency. I think you've seen um, U.S. business inbound to Mexico, probably more conservative. And I think you've seen Mexican businesses more conservative. So I actually view this as probably having a bigger benefit near to intermediate term for what happens in our institutional business. And I would say from our consumer business, we're watching longer term the impact of, uh, you know, heading into the inauguration, heading into the budget in December, and then kind of watching what comes out in terms of fiscal discipline, social programs, et cetera, and then how that translates domestically into what happens in the economy, which will have the bigger impact, in our opinion, on the consumer business. I think in Asia, when you look across our Asia franchise, you know, that, that 4% growth across the footprint in consumer is, again, to use John's words, it's pretty balanced. And, you know, as we look, you know, into, into those franchises, uh, you know, we see good growth. You saw in this quarter uh, actually pretty good underlying cards growth. You saw pretty good underlying growth in everything other than the wealth management. And I think as historic and as expected when we get these periods of heightened volatility, the, the, uh, the wealth product tends to pull back. But again, constructively, when you look at what's going on in terms of AUM, we continue to build AUM, uh, and provided this isn't some long, prolonged period of extraordinarily heightened volatility, we'd expect those wealth management um, revenues to recover uh, and therefore putting us on, on track for that 4%. Yeah, you know, uh, Glenn, we actually put a slide in the back of the earnings deck, uh, slide 20, just to try to make some of the points that Mike is just making. We, we recognize that right now, you know, the, the, the franchise is still, it's, it's a little overweight towards wealth management. And, but the wealth management revenues, is going to give us some volatility. But if you take a look at it, how it's performed over the past two years, you know, the overall franchise has been growing at about 4%, right in line with where we've targeted out to 2020. And wealth management has, has, has grown 6%. So it's been performing, but it does give us a little volatility. Now, we, we're still, as I said, a bit overweight. And, you know, we've got several initiatives underway to increase the proportion of what I would call more stable accrual-type revenues. And that includes, you know, a focus on lending. And if you, you know, if, if you look at how our loans have been growing, uh, they've been growing in a nice clip. Now, there's a good portion of our loan book in Asia Consumer that we're not looking to grow. Mortgages, very low margin loans. But if you strip out mortgages, the, other, the underlying loans, cards, personal installment loans, they've been growing at a rate of about 7% year to date. And, and even when it comes to investment products, you know, we're changing the fee structure on many of our investment products you know, more towards a, a trailing fee structure that, that we have here in, in, this, in the States, as opposed to what, what now is they're very heavily reliant on upfront fees. So that over time is going to bring Asia more in line with our fee structure in the U.S., and it will also tend to make the revenues a bit more stable. So we like what's going on in Asia, and we're still very comfortable with that 4% growth factor out to 2020. 
Awesome. Thank you. Your next question is from the line of Mike Mayo with Wells Fargo Securities. Uh, hi. Hey, Mike. Um, my first question is for Mike. Um, since we talked to you last, you installed a new head of uh, U.S. banking, and I guess this person will oversee credit cards and other retail products and distribution. So what are you trying to achieve with that new management change, and um, why now, and what kind of metrics will you monitor to make sure this change is, success is successful? Sorry. Will be a success. Sure. So, as I described in, in my preamble, really what we're, we're trying to do here and what we're trying to accomplish in many ways mimics the structure that we already have in Mexico and that we already have in Asia, where we've got regional heads who have the ability to view the franchise or important to, to view the customer holistically. And if you go back and think in many ways of the history of city, it was city card and city mortgage and city this and city that. We had a, a series of bilateral relationships through products with our clients, oftentimes not necessarily knowing or understanding the entirety of the relationship. I think the work that was done in terms of Rainbow and other technology implementations now gives us the ability to view the client holistically. Why now is because when you go back and look at the work we needed to do from products of getting our card, our card suite built out, of getting contract renegotiations, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we had a lot of work to get done, and we've now gotten to the place where we feel like we've got the products, we've got the platform, we've seen this work, it's proven successful for us in the other two regions, and the time felt right, and uh, with Anon having very successfully driven our business in Asia, we thought, given the things we're trying to accomplish here, uh, and, a, and, a, and a good bench, not just in Asia, but Mexico and other places, that it would be the right time to make this move. So uh, we're excited about it. You know, uh, Anand's pulling the team together. It's early days for him, but he brought a lot of energy to it, and we're excited about what's ahead. And any metrics that you'll monitor to make sure this is successful in terms of profitability or growth? Well, you know, I think it, it, it'll be, you know, the combination. So in there, as I said in, in my preamble, and non, you know, not only brings, you know, strong traditional uh, consumer banking, but has really been at the forefront in our firm in terms of the whole digital adoption and the push towards digital, obviously, that's, that's, extremely uh, relevant and prevalent in Asia. So one is we're going to continue to make the push because around the combination of revenue growth, customer satisfaction, as well as expense trajectory, digital plays an important part of that. So there'll be digital metrics, some of which we're, we're showing external today. Obviously, it's the, the continued growth and continued push around deposit and deposit capture not just within our traditional physical footprint, but as we talk about on a nationwide basis and, and what we do there. And then part of the value proposition that we've talked about in terms of, of how we do that and how we drive more growth, as an example, is uh, taking advantage of our broad footprint of credit card holders, uh, not just across the U.S., but around the world, and uh, using you know, various forms of digital interaction uh, and various types of, of incentives or rewards to, um, to to get more out of those relationships, and we'll have metrics against against all those. 
Great. And, and last follow-up maybe for you or for John. So you've consolidated the platforms. You've consolidated cards. You're in a position where you can do this now. So will you be giving additional disclosure as it relates to North America consumer, whether it's digital banking or slice and dicing a, a few different ways for us externally? Mike, when, when you say additional disclosure, you mean other than the, the breakouts that we give you right now as far as branded cards, retail services, and retail bank, and then adding them all up together to be the North America region? Or it could relate to you know, more digital banking disclosure, um, how you're doing with you know, uh, products and customers, or uh, you have a lot more capability internally given what you've done with Project Rainbow, and I thought that was a good reference. You, you know, it's yeah. like a decade or two to consolidate all the retail systems after all those earlier acquisitions. So now that you have these capabilities to serve customers, maybe you can provide us with more information on uh, you know, any incremental success you're having. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've taken a first stab of that. You know, if you take a look at the slide 24 in the, in the appendix, maybe uh, you know, in the future we, we can do a little bit more of this on a regional basis. Right now we're tracking everything globally. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how we build this into something else. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from the line of Matt O'Connor with Deutsche Bank. Hello. Um, hey, Matt. Actually, just to, just to follow up on uh, the last line of thinking here, you know, as you talk about kind of deepening the retail bank relationship, um, obviously part of that is going to be the, the national digital banking effort trying to get deposits. But beyond the card and the deposit gathering, like, do you think you have the product set and the kind of scale in some other areas? Because I guess my perception is you know, you're a lot smaller in mortgage <clears throat> than kind of some peers your size. Um, auto, I think you either pulled out or you're very small there. Like, are there other areas that you feel like you need to enter or bulk up so that you really have the offering for the customer base? You know, so, uh, John, why don't I start? So one is, Matt, when you, I think when you look at mortgage or you look at auto today in each of those cases the predominance of those products is an example more than half of mortgages originated in the united states today are originated by non-banks over 80 percent of auto loans originated today are originated by non-banks and so i think you know we look to, to play in our sweet spot in terms of you know broadly defined payments so cards and where payments are headed wealth management, and so the combination of then uh, the city gold type depository and product offering with the combined suite of, of investment uh, options or opportunities uh, on the back of that. And so again, we, we think that that is a, uh, you know, is, a, is a good suite, and as we look at consumer preferences, th that's probably the tighter bundle that's actually there today. And I think it, you know, when you look at people either mortgage shopping or auto loan shopping, uh, you, you tend to see those as more of kind of one-off type transactions as to uh, uh, our approach is more of the relationship approach of trying to, to broaden some of the products we have. And on the investment and wealth side, I mean, you've had some good momentum on the investment sales in terms of growth rates. Do, do you think you've got the scale that you need in that area? Uh, as you think about going national and and trying to really penetrate the card customer base, 
Okay, the, pl- the platform exists, and we can, we can uh, I won't say infinitely scale it, but we can certainly easily scale it. And, and the, the, the platforms, the connectivity, uh, all of that's there. And so, again, you know, whether we do it out of a branch on Fifth Avenue or whether we do it online, we've got the same connectivity to the products. And, and Matt, what, you know, again, we, we've never said that, you know, we're, we're never going to build another branch. If, as we, you know, show success in penetrating those, especially those those card clients that are outside of our six, you know, main cities right now, if we start to see concentrations, we'll 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 be looking to build, you know, wealth centers uh, around those population areas as well. So, it, we, you know, to Mike's point, we we think that initially we can scale off of our mobile or digital platform and then if required we're more than willing to uh, to scale up physically as well selectively and do you think the preference would be to build organically or would you be more open to maybe buying a branch network than you've been in the past i i would say it's more likely not to build organically okay and if i could just squeeze in a completely separate question um the charge-offs in Latin America uh, ticked up a bit, both linked quarter and year over year, but the delinquencies actually went down. We actually tried to make a comment on that, focused on slide, I think it's eight, where we give you those credit statistics. And you see that, that tick up to a 4.63% NCL rate in the third quarter. That's really being driven by one commercial credit that went to write-off that we had previously reserved. So it did show the, the NCL rate tick up, but it had absolutely no impact on our cost of credit. And as you so correctly note, it, it doesn't impact our delinquency statistics at all. Okay. Sorry I missed that comment. Thank you. That's okay. I say a lot. Your next question is from the line of Ken Houston with Jeffries. Hey, Ken, are you on mute? Ken Houston, your line is open. Hi, can you hear me? Yep, yep. I can. Hi, Got you. you. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, okay, so thanks. Uh, real quick, I um, wanted to ask you just about um, the deposit insurance fund assessment. And can you just kind of walk us through, um, are you expecting it to be out in the fourth quarter? And since you guys account for it through NII, just what do we need to understand about how that will move through in terms of NIM going forward as well? So you're talking about the the surcharge, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're right. We we have the surcharge. The surcharge costs us about $140 million a quarter, and that the, the roll-off of that surcharge is not embedded in the guidance that I gave earlier as far as net interest revenues growing by, you know, somewhere in that same range as they grew in the third quarter, that $970 million. So if it did roll off in the fourth quarter, that would be some upside. Okay. And then will you continue, you'll obviously continue to account for that in, um, in NIM going forward. When we think about it on a segment basis, is that spread out everywhere or is it in corporate other? How do we see that come through the segments? No, we actually push it down. 
Okay, so so, so when it comes out, it'll be a nice little helper to the both the segment NIMS and also the corporate level. That that is correct, sir. Okay, uh, got understood. One one quick one, just on on credit. Um, Latin America losses were up a little bit, and I don't know if that was the seasonal versus just uh, any change there. Can you just talk us through if there was any just notable change in underlying? No, the the uh, the tick up in in uh, net credit losses in Latin America really stemmed from one commercial credit that that we took to write off this quarter, but we had already fully reserved for it, so it really had no impact on a reported. Uh, earnings out of Latin America, it just shows up as a, you know, increase in the NCL. And then if you if you look at reserves, it's coming out of the reserve because we obviously released the reserve. But I think importantly, you'll note that our Latin America delinquencies uh, really had no 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 appreciable change. As a matter of fact, they actually went down uh, both sequentially uh, and year over year. Yep. Okay. All right. Thanks very much, John. No problem at all, Ken. Your next question is from the line of Betsy Grasick with the Morgan Stanley. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Hi, Betsy. I bet you. Hey, a uh, couple of questions. One is just on how the steepening of the yield curve is helping you out, and in particular, the European yield curve, because I think there's a little more exposure there than, than most banks that I cover, so I wanted to get your, an understanding for you as to how it's impacting your forward look. You know, Betsy, we, we really are still much more exposed to movement on the short end of the, uh, of the curve, and I think you see that in the disclosures that, uh, that, that we give you, uh, you know, both in the Qs and the Ks. So we, we really don't have a great deal of, of exposure on the long end of the curve, either in Euro or, or in U.S. Okay, so you go out like two years, is that it? Or I, I'd say, you know, when, when I, I look at everything, it's more on, you know, short rate compared to, say, three-year. Because, you know, three, we're, our, if you take a look at our, our investment portfolio, our investment portfolio probably has an average tenor of, just below three years, two seven, something like that. So it's it's really more looking at it on uh, you know the short rate out to the three year. Okay, and then <clears throat> separately, could you just walk us through how you're thinking about planning for uh, the potential risk of the Sears uh, bank with bankruptcy, either filing Chapter Seven, Chapter Eleven. Not sure which way it's going to go right now, but seemingly likely to come on Monday. Could you just give us a update on how you're thinking about um, your position there. Yeah, you know, obviously we're not in a position to comment on, you know, the likelihood that, uh, you know, Sears will commence bankruptcy proceedings. But, you know, Sears has been a 15-year uh, card partner uh, of uh, City Retail Services, and the portfolio does continue to deliver strong returns for us. Uh, if you do look at the portfolio itself, and just to put everything in perspective, the portfolio consists, you know, it's primarily MasterCard general purpose accounts. And as we've said in the past, over 70% of the customer spend uh, of that portfolio is outside of Sears. You know, that's it, it, consistent with what we would consider to be top of wallet customer behavior. And 
we know, we've seen already that the retailer, you know, has, has already taken actions to close stores and restructure its operations, and that has already been embedded in our financial planning and is embedded in uh, the, uh, you know, the outlooks that, that we've given you and the targets that we've set. So uh, we don't expect a Chapter 11 filing to have an immediate impact on Citi at all. Now, if, Sears, if a Sears bankruptcy resulted in uh, accelerated store closures, you know, it'd likely have the effect of slowing new acquisitions. Uh, we'd have to ramp up uh, our engagement with existing cardholders to you know, continue to support spending activity on the predominantly uh, general purpose MasterCard portfolio, but that would be period expenses uh, more so than any uh, individual uh, impact, you know, initial impact. Right, because and you're facing these customers obviously directly. Um, and if I recall correctly, the renegotiation that you did earlier this year with Sears gives you a little more flexibility on how you can uh, approach the clients and work with them. Is that right? Yeah, it actually means that we we own those those portfolios. We have the right to own right. those portfolios, and uh, so. We, we, we don't see any impact at all other than the slowing down. That's, a, that's in a Chapter 11. You also asked, I think, about a Chapter 7. Yep. And, you know, obviously if, if for some reason they went down to a full liquidation, uh, that would have a larger impact. You know, there'd be certain accruals that we would need to take. Uh, there'd be a write-down of the portfolio-related intangibles that remains associated with uh, – the contract that we have, and so you know that 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 total impact could be could be three hundred million dollars. You know, there'd be three hundred million dollar charge that we might have to take if they went Chapter Seven. But most of that charge, most of that charge would reflect uh, the the acceleration, you know, the write off of a contract intangible that would otherwise have fully amortized during 2019. So again. Not a real significant impact to us uh, over over the next uh, 15 months. Got it. Okay. And then just one uh, follow up on the. Um, I think there was a Cecil question earlier, but the uh, the question I have is I, I know you put in your uh, commentary what back when you did the investor day, potentially a 10 to 20 percent increase in the reserve at the point in time when Cecil's adopted in 1Q20. Um, the question I have is just the composition of that 10 to 20, does that include some asset classes where there's a build and some asset classes where there's a release? Uh, just wondered the thinking around that. Uh, the, the way that the math works with, with some of the models, yes, there are some portfolios where uh, upon the adoption of CISO, we'd actually have too much loan loss reserve. And then there are others that uh, would require us to build some additional reserves. All of that is embedded in that 10 to 20% guidance that uh, that we've given you, and that we also said that you know as, as we look at it now, it's likely to be that we're we're on the upper end of that guidance, but we're still within the guidance that we gave. Okay, thank you. No problem, Betsy. Your next question is from the line of Saul Martinez with UBS. Good afternoon. Um, Couple questions. One on the uh, the accrual businesses in, in ICG, you, you've had you know a lot of success there, but you did see a slowdown in TTS this quarter. I think it you know grow 
4% was down sequentially. Any color there with what's, what's going on and you know, what, what drove that? I, you know, Saul, I'd, I'd ask you to focus on the, uh, the constant dollar disclosure that we gave you with TTS, only because so many of our revenues in TTS, you know, come from outside the U.S., and on a constant dollar basis, what we told you is that the TTS revenues grew again by 8% uh, this quarter year over year. So we think that's, that's, that's been consistent with that, uh, you know, the growth that you've seen in the past. So we don't see any real slowdown in our TTS business at all. Okay, so it's just currency then. Um, Correct, okay, got it. And then uh, just to follow up on, on Cecil, um, you, you, you highlighted the um, – the, the estimate, but uh, I think perhaps a, the bigger impact for for you and for, for some of the money centers or GSIBs is the interplay with uh, the CCAR process and, and the interplay with the SCB. But just any comments there, any concerns about whether that, you know, Cecil's implementation in the CCAR could, you know, um, serve as an impediment to your capital optimization plan? Well, there's, there's a lot that we don't know about the future of CCAR. And, and Cecil. But the one thing we do know is that the Fed has said that Cecil will not be part of the 2019 CCAR cycle. So, therefore, you know, we're not anticipating that Cecil will have any impact on our ability to, you know, again, our, our guidance is that we, we expect to be able to achieve that $60 billion worth of capital return over those three CCAR cycles, we've done $41 billion uh, through the first two cycles that we referenced, and we don't see Cecil in, uh, as an impediment to us, uh, you know, completing that. And the other thing that we've done is we've, we've tried to emphasize with the Fed that they should be actually taking a aggregated view of the combinations of whatever's to come, whenever it comes in terms of SCB, countercyclical buffer, and Cecil together to get an aggregate or cumulative view of what, what impact that may have, not just on us, but on the industry. GSIB recalibration. Exactly. Got it. Now, I, I guess I, I, yeah, I meant more beyond 2019, just sort of your, your longer-term capital, you know, capital plan. But, okay, but that's helpful. Thanks so much. Okay. Your next question is from the line of Gerard Cassidy with RBC. Good morning, or good afternoon, guys. Hey, Gerard. Um, Mike, I think in your opening comments, you mentioned that you felt pretty good about the investment banking pipeline and upcoming transactions. Can you compare to us, you know, the outlook for that pipeline today for the fourth quarter to what you saw at the end of the second quarter going into the third quarter? Is it higher than that, the same, lower? You know, there's two other. One is there's, there's obviously seasonality to the pipeline and kind of depending. So when you you look at the, the numbers today, and John referenced it a bit, you know, that in there. So we actually had, relatively speaking, fairly strong performance in terms of M&A, and we actually had relatively weaker performance in terms of the two, the two capital markets, is debt, debt and equities. And when you look at aggregate fees in the third quarter, as an example, you know, you're in a deal or you're out of a deal, um, that can move the numbers. And so... Traditionally, when we look at, as we go into year end, at least traditionally, the combination of M&A deals getting closed um, is fairly strong. And then people trying to get in particular 
pre-funding or financing is done as we close out the year. So uh, our expectation, or what I would say, and I'm not going to get into specific numbers, but I think John, in, in what he talked about in the fourth Q in terms of investment banking, we expect both a sequential and year-over-year increase in there, says that we, we, we think we've got pretty good visibility to, um, to monetizing a fairly strong pipeline. Very good. And, and John, you talked about in the ICG, ICG group with the equity markets, you know, some of the factors that affected the, the growth in revenues. Um, and you mentioned that uh, there was a challenging trading environment and lower commissions. Can you give us any color on the MIDFID 2, how that might be affecting your cash business? And uh, can you make any conclusions yet on which way that's going? Yeah, really, we don't really see much of an impact coming from MIFID II uh, on 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 our equities business at all. Uh, what we you know we, what we had here, Gerard, if you take a look at our equities uh, overall business, we had good growth in derivatives, in prime finance, and Delta One. Uh, those those products combined were up about 15, 16 percent. Uh, year over year, and and so where we did see this uh, this decline was in was in cash equity, and we just had a we just didn't do as good a job navigating the choppy trading environment in in cash equities as we did on the other side of the house in G10 rates and and, and currencies. You know, it's choppy trading environment. We we did really well in one set of products and not so well in the other. Very good. And then just finally, you mentioned in the ICG group, you know, the corporate lending business revenues were up nicely, double digits year over year, year to date. I think they're up almost 17%. Is that coming from um, what type of corporate loans? Because I noticed, you know, the corporate loans year over year, you know, when you break it out in slide 21 of the supplement, you know, the private bank part is up strong, as well as the um, markets and security services. So w- w- where are you getting that growth? Is it from, you know, your large corporate clients or is it from other areas? It thinks it, it's pretty widespread, Gerard, to be honest with you. And it's pretty widespread both on a geographic basis as well as on a product basis. I'd say the one area where we didn't see significant loan growth uh, this quarter would have been in trade. And that's just because we deliberately took down uh, our, our trade loan book in Asia, we just didn't like the spreads. And so we went a little bit more on a originate to distribute mode in Asia. And, and, and the nice thing is with the franchise that we've built, we've got that, that ability now to either decide to participate in the market and, and hold the loan because we, we think that it's a good spread, or if the spreads are a little bit tighter than we like, uh, we can originate and then find other people that we can distribute it to. So I like the overall strength of the franchise right now. It's, it's broad-based. It really is getting deeper in with the clients. Uh, and I think that's reflected in the loan growth that you've been seeing in, you know, both, both, you know, in, in all the regions of ICG. Very good. Thank you. No problem. Your final question is from the line of Brian Kleinhansel with KBW. Hey, Brian. Hey, thanks. Um, just two quick questions here. Um, sure. One, just focusing on the non-interest revenues in North America for GCB. I mean, those are down again quarter on quarter, and it's probably like the lowest they've been 
10 years. I mean, I noticed you mentioned that there were some higher partner payments, some additional partner terms running through there, but are we kind of hitting a low watermark for that and if we should inflect from here? Yeah, you know, Brian, it, it, it's a noisy line, especially this year, and I'll grant you that. Don't, don't forget, earlier in the year, we, we had some gains that we told you about uh, on the Visa B shares. That, that is influencing that line. Uh, we also did mention the fact that we had some higher partnership terms that kicked in with, you know, some of our, 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 our portfolios, and that's going through that line. I think you're going to, to see improved growth on that line, you know, uh, when we get into next year and we get, uh, you know, beyond some of these, some of these one-off transactions. You know, if you look at city overall right now and, and you, you look at our net interest revenue and fees, net interest revenues, you know, constitute uh, just over 60% of our revenues, uh, 62, 63%, something like that, whereas fees are 37, 38%. And there's just a lot of noise going on in the fee line right now between the gain that we took last year with yield book gain now that we're taking with the asset management, the partnership fees that are that are rolling in. But you know what we what we really think that uh, as we move forward, you're going to see additional uh, fee generation, especially in GCB, uh, you know the interchange, the annual fees, as we get beyond those partner payments, they will they will come through. So I think on a go forward basis, you know you can think about growth in non-interest revenues, for city as being, you know, at a slightly higher pace than interest revenue. Okay, great. And then just one separate question on the legacy assets, uh, the North American consumer, looks like the pace of runoff has kind of slowed modestly, but I mean, how should we think about that going forward? I mean, it gave some of your guidance that it's going to be an the, offset. The, the runoff of legacy assets, that is, that is absolutely slowing because we have less legacy assets to run off. And, you know, uh, legacy assets now are roughly 1% of our overall uh, gap balance sheet. So once we got past, you know, Columbia, our Columbia consumer business, which we, uh, which we you know, managed to sell earlier this year, there are really no more operating businesses in there. It's really comprised of some of the legacy uh, mortgages and uh, home equity loans. So they'll continue to run off, but at a slower pace. What the, but what you will continue to see for at least the next year is some impact on the expense line of the runoff, because don't forget, as we sell these businesses, in many cases, we've, we've entered into these transaction support agreements where we continue to support the business for a period of time, could be 12 to 24 months, as the buyer is you know uh, integrating these operations into their own operation. So we still expect some benefit coming from the rundown of legacy assets on the expense line, but you're absolutely right. You're going to see less of an impact uh, in assets. Okay, great, thanks. Okay, no problem, Brian. There are no further questions. Great. Thank you all for joining us here today. If you have any follow-up questions, please call me and my team in Investor Relations. This concludes today's call. You may now disconnect.